Welcome to the Navigating Cancer Together podcast. My name is Talea Dendi. I'm an 11-year cancer thriver, cancer doula, and owner of On the Other Side. I use my experience to help others get on the other side of cancer. Gaps between the guidance, emotional support, and education that are needed and what one receives can be huge. This podcast fills those gaps by sharing stories, resources, and information about all things related to cancer and wellness. I interview guests from all walks of life who are living with cancer, caregivers, and those who are thriving on the other side. Also, I talk with organizations, healthcare professionals, and experts in the health and wellness spaces who offer complimentary and integrative care. Join me. We are in this together. Disclaimer, the purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. The podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. It is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professionals and is not intended for the use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests who speak in a podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions conclusions. Neither Talea Dendi, Navigating Cancer Together, On the Other Side, LLC, nor any of its affiliates endorses, supports, or opposes any treatment option or other matter discussed in a podcast. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy on a podcast should not be construed as an endorsement. Hello, everyone. This is Talea Dendi from OnTheOtherSide.life, and you're listening to the Navigating Cancer Together podcast, the show that has something for everyone facing cancer. Why? Because everyone is different with different needs, beliefs, and perspectives. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. I encourage you to open your minds and your hearts. Today, our very special guest is Sarah McDonald. At 44, Sarah was newly married, newly promoted, and planning pregnancy. It felt like a time of new beginnings in her life when suddenly she was diagnosed with a rare incurable cancer. Two months later, she was diagnosed with another unrelated cancer. During this struggle, her father's cancer, which was 10 years in remission, returned and added a new challenge, but also a cancer buddy to her world. Told in an honest and oftentimes vulnerable voice, Sarah recounts a year of difficult stories in lighthearted and humorous ways. Readers of the book, The Cancer Channel, will laugh and cry and definitely find it hard to set down. I am honored to have Sarah join me today for this episode. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome. Oh, thank you, Talia. I am beyond thrilled to talk to you. You and I have so much to discuss. Yes, we do. I'm so excited to be talking with you, Sarah. We've had a previous conversation and I want the audience to learn more about your story, the different challenges, how you got over those, and then also your book, The Cancer Channel, which I find the title very interesting. Sarah, why don't we start with a little bit about your cancer journey? You face cancer twice. Tell us more about that. 
faced cancer, two cancers at the same time, two primary source unrelated cancers at the same time. So the story is wild as each cancer story is. <laughs> I recognize yes. I am not unusual in that. But yeah, as I like to joke, I just gotten a professional promotion and I had just gotten a personal promotion as well. <laughs> My husband and I had just gotten married and I had just been promoted into a chief of staff role to the president of eBay which was super exciting new role for me. And since I was newly married at the ripe old age of 42, my husband and I were pursuing fertility treatments. We wanted very much to start a family. So I had a lot going on and was busy visiting with a lot of different doctors. During the course of meeting with doctors, raised the issue of a lump that was in the floor of my mouth. I talked with my dentist about it first she had just given me a teeth cleaning and I said, hey, is there a chance that I got an infection when you were cleaning my teeth? And she said, can you come in immediately? And she said, it could be a couple of different things. She said, yeah, it could be an infection and we should get you some antibiotics for that. She said, on the other side of the spectrum, there's this super, super rare form of cancer, but I'm sure that's not what it is. And of course, fast forward to Leah. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. So I saw a whole bunch of specialists, got a whole bunch of scans, biopsies, and was diagnosed with something called adenoid cystic carcinoma, which is basically like badass salivary gland cancer. <laughs> okay. It is rare. You've never heard of it because it's 15,000 people a year yeah. are diagnosed with it. And sadly, it's incurable. So I was given that diagnosis a week before I was about to have IVF to try to have a baby. The first person I called when I got the cancer diagnosis was my husband. Second person I called was my fertility doctor to say, call off the dogs. We are not doing IVF next week. I have cancer. And she reminded me that my mouth and my uterus were far away from one another. That was good to hear. She said, let's get through the treatments. And then you and I will talk about fertility. I had the surgery for my mouth and was meeting with my head and neck doctor to talk about radiation, which was going to be the next step in my treatment for the salivary gland cancer. And I said to him, six years ago, I found this lump in my breast and did a mammogram, did a sonogram, did some biopsies and was told it wasn't cancer. But given that I have this cancer, should we check it out? And he said, Sarah, you've already been diagnosed with one of the most rare forms of cancer there is. And when it metastasizes, so when it moves, it metastasizes to your lungs or your brain. And he said, so if you have cancer in your breast, it would be another unrelated cancer. And frankly, you don't see that in someone so young, which was great to hear because all I had been hearing from the fertility people was how old I was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> At least for the cancer people, I was young. So then you know, right. it was that. I had that going for me. <laughs> anyway, so he said, gosh, so, you know, if it'll make you feel better, you should go pursue that with your OBGYN. I did. And spoiler alert, it turns out I had been misdiagnosed. And it turns out at this point, I had stage three breast cancer mm -hmm. at the same time. As it turns out, <laughs> when you have two cancers at the same time, both of which are trying to kill you, you have to treat them concurrently. So I went through concurrent cancer treatment per year. Sarah, that's a lot. It was I'm a lot. 
I'm so glad that you're doing much better today. And I have so many questions. The first one is, what was your husband's response? You're newly married. He's like, I got a defective one. (laughs) He did not say that. Like, I can't let him listen to this podcast. He was incredible, Talia. And kind of, you know, as I have said to him, and as I say in the dedication to the book, he was everything I needed. And that just meant he didn't tell me how I was supposed to feel. He didn't fan the flames of my fear He didn't tell me that I was being a hypochondriac. He didn't do any of that. He just met me where I needed to be met. He asked questions. He held me when I needed to cry. When I decided that the medical center that had misdiagnosed me was no longer going to get my business, and I moved my business down to Stanford, he drove me. When I told the people at my company about my cancer diagnosis, he also told his company. And in both cases, both companies, both managers said, mine said, and this was the president of eBay, he said, Sarah, go home. Don't go back until you're healthy and know that we've got you. You will be supported by us. Don't you worry about it. So that was Devin Wenig, the president of eBay. Jeff, his manager was a woman named Carolyn Yopik. Jeff went in and he said, oh my God, Carolyn, I need to tell you what's going on. She just looked at him and she said, go home and be with your woman, which Jeff and I often laugh about. It was just a funny kind of thing, but it was absolutely what we needed to hear. And in both cases, just alleviated the stress of, oh my God, how are we going to navigate this while trying to hold down jobs? They were unbelievable. So our managers were unbelievable. Your question was actually about my husband. I am so lucky. He was next to me the whole way. It is such a blessing to have the support of your employer, your job, and then also your husband. You definitely picked the right one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the thing that's unbelievable to me, and I don't want to take us on a tangent, but I think this is so core for so many people. That is the reaction that companies should have when they have an employee in crisis. They have a human in crisis standing in front of them, and they should choose to act as humans first and as managers or employers second and seek to help this human who is in crisis. Jeff is my husband. Jeff and I were both very lucky that we had those people managing us. And then the thing that is just unbelievable to me, I've now met a lot of cancer survivors, and it is always unfathomable to me when a partner chooses to walk away and says, this is too hard. I can't go on this journey with you. Frankly, if a partner says that, then Great. Don't Mm -hmm. let the door hit you on the ass on the way out. Get out. That's right. As they will be in the way and they will add complications. But it is amazing to me that happens. It's sad. It's heartbreaking. And when I hear those stories, I'm just like, I can't believe that people are like that. There's usually a blessing in that too. And that's a clear indicator that is not the person you should be sharing the rest of your life with. You absolutely are correct. You are Mm -hmm. absolutely correct. People have told me, Sarah, there were problems there before. Okay, I get that. But when someone is crisis, that's when you should run toward them. The other question that I have, Sarah, is you waited in your 40s to get married and start a family, start thinking about that, preparing for that. And then you get this news. What were your thoughts at that time? (laughs) Yeah, I didn't get married till 42. And part of that is, I think, when you're selecting your life partner. Which is young. I have to throw that in there. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yes, 42 is young. It is. I think you need to find somebody who shares a similar vision for what your future will be. I fell in love many times before I met my husband. I did. And he knows that. And it was true for him as well. We both had some tremendous relationships, but I hadn't prior to meeting him met someone who I felt I had the tools with. We had good working tools and we shared a vision for the future. And once we both aligned on that, we got married. And to be clear, and I do tell this story in the book, we did not get married as quickly as I would have chosen. (laughs) That's okay. Jeff McDonald takes a while to make a decision and that's fine. And he said, yeah, but look, once I made the decision, I was all in. That's right. I agree. I agree. But to the point about sharing a vision for the future, once we got married, we had this beautiful vision of how we would start a family and what would that family look like? Where would we live and what would we do? It was a beautiful story that we had created. And the cancer diagnosis changed that story. I tell people one of the insights for me of the cancer diagnosis is when you receive one, there's a period of mourning that you go through. It's, I think, similar to grief in that there are many different stages and people talk about feeling denial, feeling anger, doing bargaining. If there's a higher power in your life, doing bargaining. I mostly felt sadness and my sadness was realizing that the story now wasn't going to come true. And it was really hard to give that up because I felt There were so many amazing things going on in my life. I was so in love with my husband and so thrilled for this life we were going to pursue. I loved working for eBay and you and I could have an entire podcast (laughs) just on my love of eBay as a company and its goal of enabling economic opportunity for all. I was very privileged to work there for 14 years. And this exciting role as chief of staff, I knew that this would grow me professionally in some amazing ways that potentially put me on a different trajectory. And I really dug Devin. We really got along. So I thought this is going to be so much fun. I just had this fabulous life that I needed to realize my end within a year. When I first got my diagnoses, the adenoid cystic carcinoma, I'm sorry, let me just call it salivary gland cancer. Salivary gland cancer, it's incurable. You and your listeners know that incurable doesn't mean terminal. That's right. Those are not synonyms, but it does mean that the doctors haven't figured it out yet. They haven't figured it out. Anytime you look it up, it says words like relentless, scary word, scary word. So at the first diagnosis, we just had no idea what the prognosis or the outcome would be. And then when I suddenly had a second cancer and we knew we hadn't caught it early, we knew it had been six years. That was chilling, really chilling. In fact, I was immediately sent (laughs) to the genetics department, Uh Stanford. Because they were like, what's going going on? on? What's going on here? The head of genetics, lovely man named Jim Ford. He was like, we're going to take all sorts of blood work. We want to understand if there's, and now I'm air quoting on a podcast, which is not helpful, but (laughs) I want to know if there's a larger story here. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I want no larger story. There is some gene that I don't remember the name of it. I was calling it the all cancer all the time gene. That's what I didn't (laughs) want to have. And I didn't have that. And we still have no idea. I was so lucky to have two cancers at the same time. So when I had the two diagnoses, I just had to be really honest with myself that my time might be short. I needed to spend a lot of time processing that grief and accepting the diagnosis. That doesn't mean accepting your death or having catastrophic thinking. Mm -hmm. I needed to accept 
the diagnosis so that I could begin focusing on getting better, on healing. And Talia, I'll be really interested if you thought about this as well. Knowing that my time might be short, I spent a lot of time thinking, how do I want to live intentionally during that time? And how can I be graceful? Yeah. In that time, because certainly when you receive a diagnosis, you have some very ungraceful moments, very terrified moments. But I thought if my time is short, how do I ensure the end of my life is as graceful as it can be? Yeah, I absolutely can relate to that, Sarah. That is one of the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing today, because when you're staring death in the face, so to speak, it makes you really realize what's important. And it really encouraged and ignited a stronger desire to figure out what I was really here to do. Why was I here? Because whatever time I had left, if it was six months, six years, who knows? I wanted to make sure I at least started it or made a big impact before my time was up here. It just really added this urgency to my life and to do the things that I figure out, number one, what that was, and number two, take action to start doing it. What one woman I met, Sean George, who also has the salivary gland cancer, what she said to me was, Sarah, life is precious and Mm -hmm. short, so we must do what is in our hearts. Boy, do I agree. So for me, that's why I wrote the book, in great part, like mine is a crazy story, as I said, as so many of our stories are. But I hope my story is one of hope. I hope that cancer patients and their friends and family, the people that love us, I hope cancer patients who might be feeling really alone, I call it cancer island. Yes. <laughs> if you are suddenly diagnosed and you're like, I am suddenly alone on a deserted island, not in a good way. Okay. And I am looking at the rest of the world on the shore and they're all partying like life goes on forever. And I'm on Cancer Island. My goal for the book was to provide a lifeline to some of those people on Cancer Island to say, I see you. I feel you. I hope that people will read the book and that the stories will resonate with them. And the things that are so hard for them to say out loud, I hope they find in the book. What I also hope is that their friends and family read the book and have a greater understanding for what's going on for the person who has cancer, because some of the things are hard to say out loud. So that's why I wrote the book. That's why I'm just trying to talk to as many people about it, because if my time is short, I want to make sure I've helped and touched as much as I can. That's right. Thank you for sharing that. And we will talk a little bit more about the book before we end, like where people can find it and things like that. One thing that I want to go back to was your misdiagnosis. And people are often misdiagnosed, unfortunately, or it's caught later because they were just simply blown off. Yeah. Sarah, did you go back to that hospital or clinic and say, hey, what happened? Where was the breakdown? Or did you just pack up your bags and just focus on what was next? I'd say a combination. I don't think my misdiagnosis, I don't think anybody did it on purpose. I believe that doctors are human. And as my one friend says, that's why they call it practicing medicine. (laughs) (laughs) True. That's true. They're human. They make mistakes. They don't know everything. 
I had a particularly strong relationship with my OBGYN. She had been treating me during those six years that I clearly had cancer and, and she had missed it. The surgeon who had worked with me had missed it and the radiologist had missed it. Like a number of people, there were a number of points of failure, but I don't think any of them did it on purpose. When I did go back to her after meeting with my head and neck guy, when he said, Hey, if you want to pursue that, you should pursue that, which kind of made me feel like a hypochondriac when he said that <laughs> I felt blown off, right? He's Sarah, nobody gets two primary source cancers. Come on. When I pursued it and went back to her and I will tell you what I called <laughs> her clinic to schedule some time. They're like, oh, her next available appointment is in two months. I was like, are you kidding me? So I have cancer. I have to talk to her tomorrow. So I actually have her email address. So I emailed her and she saw me before her clinic started. She saw me the next day, which was amazing and speaks to the kind of doctor she was. But when I went to see her, I said, hey, I have this other cancer diagnosis and I want to revisit the tumor in my breast. And she said, wait, haven't you and I been doing mammograms every year? I said, yeah, for the last six years. And she said, but you have dense breasts. She said, and tumors sometimes don't show up on mammograms if you have dense breasts. I was like, what you talking about? I was like, how is it this is coming up now? I think I used that voice. She was like, we should get you an MRI. And I said, hey, the other thing is, look at, we did a biopsy. I had a surgical biopsy. I was like, look, here's the lump look, here's the scar. She looked at me and she said, Sarah, look where the scar is and look where your lump is. They're not near one another. And Talea, it was the first time I noticed they weren't near one another. And I see my breast every day. Yeah. And that's when the electricity started going through me. And I thought, oh my God, they didn't biopsy the lump. They made a mistake. Oh my God. And I've had cancer for six years. And of oh, course, I'm thinking, it's probably throughout my body. Oh my God. I just looked at the doctor and I was like, how can this be happening? How could this have happened? She was at a loss as well. She said, I don't know. I don't know. And she said, I will get you in for an MRI as quickly as I can. And I said, tell you what, I am starting to learn that I need to parallel process everything. I'm a project manager first. So I'm going to try to get a MRI appointment at the same time. She said, I can't get you in for six weeks. I called Stanford and they got me in at the end of the week. So I did not go back and yell and scream. I just thought I'm taking my business elsewhere. I can't deal with you people. <laughs> I'm going to go where I trust the doctors, where they're going to prioritize me, where they're going to listen to me, and I'm going to move forward, not backward. That's the approach I took. Great approach, because it's like you need as much energy as you can to move forward. And why waste it there? Just keep on going and get the support that you need and the care that you need. Yeah. I understand. I want to talk a little bit more about fertility, Sarah. What advice do you have for women who are facing fertility challenges? That's very common these days. Super common. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking with a girlfriend the other day who had these questions. And it's funny, she had worked for me like 15 years ago. And when I was going through fertility treatments initially, and I'm, I'm 10 years older than she is. And I remember at the time, she's 34. 
34, I think, at the time. And she said, Sarah, should I freeze my eggs? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I am your manager. I don't think I should be. I said, but okay, let's be, let's just talk as friends. I was like, I would, as I said to her at the time, freezing your eggs is creating option value later, but it's expensive. It's $10,000 to do it. So it's a big chunk of change. I would suggest people talk sooner rather than later with a fertility doctor to get advice on what their options are, because there will always be a ton of options up to and including and beyond adoption is an option as well for creating mm -hmm. a family. But if you want to first try with your own eggs, with your partners or whatever, I would just have conversations sooner rather than later, even before you've identified that partner that mm -hmm. you want to have a family with. And I have a ton of friends who have chosen to have children without a partner. Families take many different forms, but just remembering there are a ton of different options. You just need to understand what they are and how you go about it. Great advice. Thank you, Sarah. I want to talk a little bit now about your father. He was diagnosed and treated for stage four prostate cancer while you were undergoing cancer treatments. Can you please describe what life was like at that time? Hard hard. So dad was first diagnosed when he was 62, which is an awkward time to receive a prostate cancer diagnosis. What I've heard is if men live long enough, they will have prostate cancer, but 62 is young. And he talked to a number of people and the decision he made was to not do surgery, but in fact, just radiate. And it was terrific. He felt that was the best decision for him at the time. But 10 years later, it only takes one cancer cell and his cancer had metastasized and we discovered it. He came to visit San Francisco, where Jeff and I were living. San Francisco, it can be cold. He couldn't get warm while he was visiting. At one point, like I had two heating pads that I like put around him and plugged him in <laughs> and just said, let's try to get your core warm. When he headed back to Southern California, I said, dad, you might want to go see a doctor. And I don't know what's going on. He found out that the cancer was in his bones. And that was really hard for us. We thought that that was in the rear view mirror and to have both of us going through cancer. I don't know. It's just hard <laughs> in a family to deal with that. But the kind of the strange thing for dad and me is it brought us closer so we could have conversations with one another that maybe he didn't want to have with mom or maybe I didn't want to have with Jeff and just about what the future is and we could compare notes. The tough thing, we were going through chemo at the same time. Actually, initially he was like, I'm not going to do chemo because he was very private about his cancer. In sharp contrast to me, who was blogging about my <laughs> cancer, dad was super private and he didn't want us telling anyone. He said, if I do chemo, I will be bald. I will signal to everyone that I have cancer. I said, Dad, is that more important than living? Because that was my perspective. And Talia, you know, what the, the life learning here was Dad and I approached cancer different. That was my prerogative for my body and my life. It was his prerogative for his body and his life. Initially, I wanted to tell him all about it, about how he was supposed to be doing this and how going aggressively with the chemo, that was the best, his best chance. And he should find a patient advocate and blah, blah. You know, I just wanted so desperately to help my father to live. But guess what? He gets to make his own choices. That was just a huge epiphany, a humbling epiphany. 
Sadly, dad did not survive that year. Sadly, you know, he again, stage four, and he was older. It was a different cancer than my cancers and Mm -hmm. a different outcome. What he didn't need was his mouthy opinionated oldest daughter. (laughs) telling him how to do stuff. What he needed is someone who could hold space for him and talk with him and sit with him and hold his hand and tell him that I loved him. Good news is I eventually figured that out. Bad news, it probably took me longer than it should have. Thank you so much, Sarah, for sharing that because it's a very important story and it's very important for people, the loved ones of people with cancer to respect the wishes of the person who has cancer because they are the ones going through it. As much as our loved ones want to help and try to save our lives and things like that, Ultimately, it's the person who's going through it who gets to make those decisions, whether you agree with it or not, respect it and love them through whatever it is that they decide. As hard and as hurtful as you may take it to be, it's not about you. It's about the person who has to go through that. Thank you, Sarah, for sharing that story. Yeah. The epiphany that it's not about me Mm -hmm. comes to my dad was a big one because what I wanted to do was pump all those chemo chemicals into him to keep him alive as long as I could. But he had a conversation with his doctor that really stuck with me. His doctor asked him on a scale of one to 10, how are you feeling? And dad said, I'm a four. The doctor said, okay, with chemo, I think I can get you up to a six. And my dad said, when can you get me to a nine? And the doctor said, I don't think I can. I think I can. And so my dad's question really was, do I want to live life at a three or a four? He was spending a whole bunch of his life at a three or a four. And at some point he decided, to be clear, he wanted to stick around for another winning football season for the <laughs> University of Michigan. Of <laughs> it's really clear that if University of Michigan could deliver that for him, he would die happy. But at some point he said, I'm done and I'm going to stop doing the chemo. And that's where we were. Yeah. He wanted to enjoy or live the best that he could as comfortable as he could with the time he had left. The other thing I want to applaud you for, Sarah, is you mentioned that you felt like you came to the realization later than you should have. I want to add that at least you came to the realization and you didn't damage the relationship. You were able to push past your feelings keep the good relationship intact. And then you had that time together before your father passed. Some people don't get that because they have tried to force their thoughts and opinions on their loved one. And that breaks down the relationship. Yep. I agree. Thank you. Thank you. Sarah, I want to talk about now the miracles that you experience because of cancer and how they have changed your life, because this is just as important as well. I called the book The Cancer Channel, and then the subtitle, I say, One Year, Two Cancers, Three Miracles. The first miracle was at the end of my year of treatments, I was no evidence of disease for the salivary gland cancer. And miracle number two (laughs) was at the end of the year, I was no evidence of disease for the breast cancer. Nice. Congrats. Yes. Very much. (laughs) I'm still no evidence of disease. Yes. That way. But then the third miracle was that two years past my treatments, Jeff and I had these embryos that were on ice and I was feeling relatively optimistic that I might live. 
So we started talking about what were the options for us for a family. And might we, perhaps if I couldn't carry the child, perhaps we could hire a surrogate. And so we were going down that path. We were exploring that path with my fertility doctor when I had my two-year post-treatment meeting with the breast oncologist. And I said to her, hey, just want to update you on our fertility. I'm thinking I should feel optimistic and we should have a baby and hire a surrogate. She said, gosh, Sarah, I'm so glad you're bringing this up. She said, because there's just been this study in Europe of Belgian and German women (laughs) who had breast cancer, who willfully took themselves off their medications. So against doctor's orders, they got pregnant, they had babies, and they went back on their cancer medications and they didn't have higher incidences of recurrence. So if you want to try it, let's have a baby. What a roller coaster or what whiplash. I had finally gotten my head around surrogacy and here I am being presented with, hey, if you want to try to carry this baby, we think you can. So I went home and told Jeff and he said, why would you want to do that? He was like, why would you want to take yourself off your medication? He's like, I want some sort of a guarantee, guarantee mm-hmm. that neither of your cancers will come back. And I was like, sweetheart, we never have that guarantee ever. So I said, more the question is like, What life experiences do I want to have while I'm still alive? And I want to carry a baby. That would be amazing. I think. (laughs) I don't know. So I went off my medications and I did IVF and Miracle of Miracles. I got pregnant. And at 47, got pregnant, delivered my baby at 48. She was breech, but that was the most complicated. We just didn't have complications. My doctor kept saying, you're so healthy. I was like, except for all of that cancer. (laughs) Right. But he was like, you're just so healthy. I was was working out a ton and felt great. My pregnancy felt great. In 2016, I had this very feisty little girl (laughs) named Rory McDonald, Rory Elizabeth McDonald. And it's been amazing and really hard. Did I mention amazing? And did I mention really hard? I'm so happy for you. Sarah, one thing maybe two. So what advice or encouragement, I should say, do you have for women who are deciding to have children later in life and 40 something to me isn't old or anything like that after 30 something, and then who have also had cancer in the past? What advice? Because that is a lot to think about. And for some people that might just be too much. It might be. It might be. And so everybody's unique in what their hopes and dreams are. I have met a number of women who have had, say, breast cancer, who know in talking with their doctors that the treatment will involve chemo and that going through chemo, their eggs will no longer be viable. So as women, we're born with the eggs we have. And the issue is, as we get older, they get older. And if you go through chemo, your eggs will no longer be viable. That's my understanding. That's how it is right now. I have met women, young, the women who are in their like 20s and 30s, who at a shockingly young age are diagnosed with breast cancer. I have met those women who then proceed to go through egg retrieval. You do that by (laughs) pumping a whole bunch of hormone Mm -hmm. into your body in order to encourage more eggs. And so I have met women who, because they're so motivated to have children, that they hold off on their treatments and they pump their bodies full of hormones or retrieve those eggs. And I'm amazed by these women. That is so brave. I don't know 
that I would have been able to do it. So I am just in awe of people who are that brave. So I guess the first piece of advice is like, go and talk to your doctors about what the options are. Again, I just think you need to understand what are all of your options and what works for you and your family and your situation. So that is an option. For women who are older, we actually had to pursue an egg donor prior to me going through cancer because I was 42 when we were going through fertility treatments. And the doctors show you this chart of your the dreaded chart yeah. chart at 42 <laughs> like it, it's a cliff mm-hmm. right cliff yeah and so I went through I don't know a year and a half of pumping myself with hormones and I would produce one egg which I would have done naturally and at that point I said to my husband we are throwing good money after my very bad eggs yeah. need to think about what other options are out there for us. So that's when we talked with the doctor and I raised it. She was willing to try whatever because she was tremendous. She's amazing. She's an amazing human, my fertility doctor. But I think I was the one that said, hey, we need to look into egg donors. And by the way, egg donors, super, super expensive. So the woman who said to me, should I freeze my eggs? I was like, let me just be very clear with you. From a cost standpoint, freezing your eggs for $10,000 is orders of magnitude, less money than you will spend if you want to go down the egg donor Mm, (laughs) path. That's much more expensive and we can get into that, but it's just much more expensive. So that's where I'm like, you're creating option value for yourself. When your eggs are healthy, grab them. But yeah, I had already gone through an egg donor. Our embryos were an egg donor and then Jeff's sperm. So again, there are a lot of different options. I have friends who have used an egg donor and a sperm donor. Have to decide what you have. what you realistically have to work with, and then what are the options. And I know some people who just decide that's a bridge too far. I have a close friend to me for faith reasons, and I don't believe this is God's plan for me. I was like, then don't do it, sister. You have to look into your heart and you need to have counsel with people and other beings. If God or that higher power by any other name is an integral part of your life, to the conversations you need to have to determine what the path forward is for you. Again, check out the options before you decide. Know your options, get the education about those options. And I really like how you ended that about the faith piece, because for a lot of people that is huge. And I will share, Sarah, that my oncologist, because I was so young when I was going through cancer and he asked me, what I wanted to do. Did I think about it? I should think about it. And I thought about it. I like you did, like you said, I learned about my options and I decided against doing anything because of faith. I said, if it's God's will, I believe that I will have children one day, you know, and I'm okay with that if it doesn't happen. And there are so many different ways to have a family. Like, I believe that. I know many stepmothers who are like the primary parent in their Mm -hmm. child's life. And they have those intimate relationships. So I just think there are like some tremendously amazing ways to have a family. Thank you for sharing that story, Sarah, and for putting that advice out there. It's very helpful just to let people know that it's okay, whatever you decide. That's right. Sarah, before we end, I want to talk a little bit more about your book, The Cancer Channel, and please share anything else that you would like. But then also let us know, let the audience know what the response has been to your book so far. Oh, I 
totally want to talk about that. It's funny. Let me first start by saying it is a very funky and weird thing to write a memoir, especially when you're not a famous person, because I'm telling very personal stories. And the fear is you put something out like this and people say, eh, <laughs> who cares? Or I'm not interested, or I don't find the stories interesting, or it's not well written. There are all sorts of fears, those little voices in your head. And I spend a lot of time thinking, is this silly? Am I just wasting my time? And I thought, you know what? I tell these stories a lot. People tell me they're interesting. And if I just help a couple of cancer patients, then that's cool. Then I have maybe fulfilled my purpose and maybe I've helped. I had some beta readers. So people who read the book beforehand and gave me very open, honest feedback. Actually, I'll tell this story maybe really quickly <laughs> if you're okay with it. Yeah. A girlfriend of mine who was diagnosed after I was. So we both worked at eBay and she was diagnosed a couple years after I was. And then sadly her cancer came back. And when it came back, it was stage four. And she and I went out to lunch and I told her that I was writing this book. And she said, Sarah, I would love to read it. And to be clear, Talia, this woman was in the legal department and <laughs> could be brutally honest. Right. I worked with her and I thought, do I want to know? So I sent her the book <laughs> and we met for lunch again. And she was like, Sarah, you are always funny. She's like, I've always thought you're funny. And your stories, they're great. They're really mm -hmm. funny. He said, but your book isn't honest. And that stopped me short. I was like, say more. And she said, you're not talking about the hard times. I'm not talking about the terror that comes with a cancer diagnosis. You're not talking about the times you were in the fetal position in your bed. Pause, Sarah. Was that intentional or unconsciously had you done that? I think it was intentional. I think what I kept thinking is that if I make it, so my blog was funny, right? I kept thinking if I make the book funny, people will want to read it. It's a funny read. What I realized, it's not nearly as helpful. I would do myself and other cancer patients a disservice making it just this funny story that wouldn't capture the half of it. So Sarvanaz was her name and Sarvanaz just gave it to me straight and I can't thank her enough because I went back and I worked really hard on describing as viscerally as I could what it felt like. Yeah. And my book is a better book for it. And sadly, she can't read it because mm. she died. So that's hard. But what a gift she gave me. What a gift she gave me. And it relates to the feedback I've received. Put a memoir out there and the beta readers were all like, this is great, great book, Sarah, funny and poignant and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, beta readers, you're all friends of mine. Of course, <laughs> I can't actually trust you to tell me honestly what it is. Now, oh my goodness. So people are reading the book and there are people I don't know who are reading the book who are contacting me or did another podcast where the journalist said, I read the book and Sarah, I was up until two o'clock in the morning reading it. I was mm. like, that is the best news ever. Oh my goodness. So the response has been tremendous. And the response from cancer patients has been what I had hoped that I said at the beginning, they say, you described how I felt. And that's what I want to hear. And then perhaps even more interesting has been the friends and family, my friends and family, but also friends and family of other people who are like, I had no idea what was going on, or I had no idea that this is what goes on for cancer patients. And I want to show up differently now. Wow. 
that is just so humbling and so gratifying. That's why I'm just trying to tell as many people as possible about the book. You don't make any money writing a book. By the way. That is true. Yeah. And if you know that, you disabuse anyone of that notion. But if you can help someone, if you can help people, oh my goodness, I will feel like I am uh, getting closer to living my life's purpose. Thank you for sharing that and writing the book. And giving the people a voice who may not want to get out there and share their story or are afraid, whatever it is, but just bringing that to light and bringing those stories and experiences to light and giving something people can connect with so that they don't feel like they're just on this cancer island. Yes, I hope so. It's in Kindle, it's on paperback, it's in hardcover. And I have all these people who have been saying to me, I don't read books. You're going to have to do an audio book. It's great. It's just another cost. Another cost. I'm going to have to talk Jeff McDonald into that, (laughs) but I would love to do the audio book because again, I just want to get the message out there. Sarah, where can people find the various versions of your book? Kindle paperback and hardcover are all on Amazon, the Cancer Mm -hmm. Channel. I also, I self-published with my own imprint. So it's also with Ingram. If you go to your local bookstore, your local independent books, and I'm sure Barnes and Noble as well, (laughs) you go to your independent local bookstore and ask for the Cancer Channel, they can order it for you from Ingram. Wonderful. Sarah, do you have a website, any social media where you would like people to connect with you? You're really good, Talea. (laughs) I am less good about that. Yes, I'm trying to be very social, but I have a website called thecancerchannelbook.com where you can read excerpts of the book. And I'm also keeping a blog. My editor had me remove some of the stories from the book because she's like, it's a funny story, but it doesn't relate to the book. So I have some stories that I'm posting there, as well as you and I have hit on some topics that I feel passionately about. So I'm going to be writing about those. But yeah, so there's a blog. And in the event, somebody wants me to come talk at their company, because one of the topics I am doing a lot of talking with people about is how can companies and managers show up for their employees who are in crisis? So there's information about how to get in touch with me if your listeners are interested. Sarah, it has been such a pleasure talking with you. I want to thank you for sharing so many vulnerable stories, yet honest stories, and just for giving people different things and different perspectives to think about when going through some of these tough things in life. Before we end, is there anything else that you would like to share with the audience? You know, just that in this, maybe it's the Taoist belief that even when there are bad things happening, some good can come out of it. While I would never, ever wish cancer on anyone, there were some beautiful moments during that year and since that came from having that crisis. And I think in some ways, my life, and I recognize I was lucky that I made it through for now. (laughs) I was lucky that I made it through, but there are some great gifts. There are some great gifts that came out of it. So I just, I would remind people that there are these two sides and look for the gifts that are there. I agree. Three miracles for sure came out of it for you, Sarah. (laughs) And I would like to add to that, encourage people 
This is something that I had to do with my mindset work. And it was for me not to focus on what cancer was taking from me or stealing from me, but what was it that I could get from cancer in that experience? And that's a great way, a great thought to leave people with. Thank you, Sarah. Super. Thank you, Talia. This has been such a privilege and such a joy. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. I enjoyed talking with you now and even before when we had our first conversation. I want to thank you for your time and uh, spending a little bit of extra time with me to help get this message out to people. It's very important for people to know that they're not alone and to hear from people who have been through hard things in life and they're still here and they're thriving. That's right. Thank you so much, Talia. My pleasure, Sarah. Thank you. Before we end today, I would like to give a shout out to the listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you've enjoyed this episode, you found it helpful and insightful, please share, follow, or subscribe so that you can easily find my podcast and listen again. That is it for this Wednesday. And until next time, let's keep navigating cancer together. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Navigating Cancer Together. I hope you enjoyed it. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you enjoyed the show, please share or tell your friends and family about it. For notes from the show and previous episodes, visit ontheotherside.life and check out the podcast section. I would love it if you joined us for the next episode. Talk to you soon.